Hey everyone, I'm Nick Mesmer, one of the co-hosts of the Biblical Languages podcast. This episode is part two of a recording of a recent live stream event that was hosted by the Ancient Language Institute. They invited me to be a part of their roundtable discussion about how to learn ancient languages, specifically in light of modern second language acquisition research. For part one, check out last week's episode called Grammar Translation, Communicative Approaches, and Ancient Languages. In this second part, we talk about speaking ancient languages, the difference between translating and glossing, and the role of explicit grammar. To kind of go back to our imaginary you know, Facebook character, trying to figure out what to do. So, so far, our imaginary Facebook character is like, okay, I need, a, I need to get exposed to as much content that I can understand and the target language as possible. That makes sense. I'm sold. But somebody, somebody mentioned something about speaking the language. Say that I'm interested in ancient Greek or ancient Latin or ancient Hebrew. Speaking the language? Why, why would I do that? I'm not going to order a cappuccino and coin a Greek, right? Uh, and if I go to the Vatican, I'm probably not going to use the ADM there, right, in Latin. <laughs> why? Um, so, so now there's this question, why speak? What good does it do? Especially if, and let's, let's make that question a little bit more precise. Say that a reader, a reader or, you know, faithful Facebook user here <clears throat> is, has this goal of reading. I want to be able to read texts. I don't really, I don't really care about speaking. I just want to read. So why should I speak it? Uh, what what um, what do you all say to this uh, to this question? Um, I think the first yeah the first thing I would say is distinguishing between speaking as a method and speaking as a goal. Um, so just because it's not your goal doesn't mean it isn't a good method for achieving your goal. So the question there would be, does speaking the language help you become a better reader of the language? So that's just a, a question first. But the other distinction I think is, that's important is um, the distinction between like speaking um, or, or the content of what you're speaking and what's happening in your head as you're speaking or the way that speaking allows you to engage uniquely with the language. So what I mean by that is... Um, just because you want to speak the language doesn't mean you need to learn how to or order a cappuccino in the language, right? Um, so <clears throat> my my point is that adopting speaking as a method does not um, commit you to any content of the language that you're going to be speaking. It doesn't commit you to learning how to ask where to go to the bathroom or anything like that. All it does is commit you to um, whatever con kind of content from the language you want to learn, you're committing to speaking that content as a way to learn it. So that that's where I would start just making some distinctions about what we mean by speaking the language. Um, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's a really good point. And just to kind of highlight that, I think it, it's good to make that distinction. And I, I like to say it's a distinction between conversational and spoken because conversational often is that sort of thing. Like, where is the taqueria? Right. Where, where can I get the tacos? How can I order the beer? Um, how can I assassinate Julius Caesar? You know, things like that um, that you would use in daily life. 
but spoken, um, I, I see it more as a sort of literary approach as you're, you're talking about a text or you're talking about an image. Um, and it's not, it's not that same sort of exercise as conversational. Um, so I think that that's, that's a helpful, um, helpful distinction. Any uh, further thoughts on why speak? What, what will you tell this, this person if you're, you know, you're stuck in the elevator with him? Um, just from, again, speaking from personal experience, um, the, the thing that I've found, especially when teaching, and even when teaching kids especially, is speaking really kind of fossilizes the language, if you will, <laughs> in kind of a way that I think just reading it won't. Um, so when you have, you know, you ask kids, for example, if you're in a Latin class, quid est in hockey monkey name or whatever, what's in this picture? And they're able to say est vir or something. Um, and having them be able to kind of repeat back things and answer questions really gets the kind of the bones of the grammar even. And again, it's more an implicit knowledge that starts to happen over time. The more they speak it and the more they um, get more input. Um, and it just helps them kind of have it in their brain. And so even for adults, and I found this when I, you know, with myself too, is it's um, the second I start to use the language um, and even when it's an ancient language like Latin or something, um, it becomes real in a way that just reading it wouldn't. Um, you start to kind of get a good sense of how, how words are, you know, put together to make senses. Um, and again, even if it's not formal knowledge, I don't know why, for instance, let's say you have a student who has no idea why the dative is used here or whatever. Um, but that's just how you say it. Like, okay, for example, um, nomen est mihi. Why in the world do you use the dative there? Um, instead of having to explain it, which you could do, um, they just know that's exactly how you say it. And the more they speak, I think that that kind of gets that into their brain. So that's what I would say, just from a teaching perspective, it's it's really helpful for the students. Whatever um, point of view you have on the value of output in language acquisition, I think that there's not a good argument against doing it. Um, whether you believe the output is directly uh, helpful in acquisition, great. If so, wonderful, then output. If you don't, if you are a very strong sort of input only type of person, well, when you output, you obtain more input in, in a communicative context, in the, in the canonical communicative context, which is a conversation. Um, so wonderful. You are now in a conversation with, inter with an interlocutor who can modulate the, uh, the difficulty of the, um, of the spoken text, right? Of the, of what input you're receiving to something you can comprehend. You can do things like, you know, look confused. Uh, what, what did you mean by that? And then they can recast and you can use all sorts of techniques like that. And you hone in on the level and you're delivering like the exact kind of input that even the most hardcore input only person would say, that's the good stuff. So I think that's uh, a lot of good reasons to, to speak. Yeah. I would say too. Oh, sorry. No, you go for it. Go for it, Carter. I was just going to say, um, speaking is also really fun. <laughs> you know, it, it makes learning Latin 
not horrible, right? And then there's a lot of things that do that. But speaking, and for all ages, I have found is it makes it way more enjoyable. And that's kind of going getting back into the motivation behind the, the student, right? Like if they want to learn it and they want to come to class and they want to jump in and start speaking, um, then it makes it just more fun for me as a teacher and the students as well. Like I remember having a student, um, actually a, a guy who was um, who had to teach for a classical school. And we got to the point where we were just talking in Latin the whole time in class. And it was super fun and we both enjoyed it. So that's that's another thing too that I would say about speaking. Yeah, and I think that shouldn't be downplayed. I mean, motivation, even in the research, like motivation is so critical for learning and maintaining your language skills. Um, and it kind of almost goes back to what you said early on, Jonathan, about translating a text into your native language gives you this sense of control over it and mastery and like accomplishment. Mm -hmm. I, I think producing the language yeah. does that all the more. Um, but yeah, in terms of the, the benefit of speaking from the research side, um, in, in the field of second language acquisition, um, uh, starting early on, um, I think in the 90s is when people began pushing back actually against Krashen's input stuff. And so Krashen had the input hypothesis. And then in the 90s, Swain came up with the output hypothesis, um, which just emphasized the, the importance of output. Um, after that came the interaction hypothesis, which talks about both. Um, anyway, but the output well, hypothesis. Well, that's just Hegelian synthesis right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but the output hypothesis, Swain talks about three important aspects of output. And I'm, I'll just say them quickly. The, one is the noticing function, which refers to when you produce the language, you notice what you don't know about the language. So when you're trying to say something, you, you notice that you know how to say it in some ways and not others and things like that. Um, the second is hypothesis testing function, which is, um, I'll just read what I have. When a learner says something, there's always an at least tacit hypothesis underlying his or her utterance. Um, for example, about grammar. So by uttering something, the learner tests this hypothesis and re receives feedback from the interlocutor. So that's especially in the context of conversation. You can get feedback and test hypotheses about the language. And again, kind of learn what you do and don't know, which is extremely helpful. The third is a metalinguistic function, which means that learners reflect on the language they learn and thereby the output enables them to control and internalize linguistic knowledge. So that's the output hypothesis, kind of earlier stages of talking about the role of output. Since then, I, I just think it's become pretty ubiquitous in the field that output is at least helpful. Um, I, uh, people do emphasize in the field the limits of it and, and really emphasize more the ben benefits of input. But I think it's pretty ubiquitous that people acknowledge that it's helpful, uh, primarily in that um, it, it causes you to process the language more deeply. So... Um, Besides the theory, just empirically, there have been studies that show that people who practice um, active skills like speaking and writing become better at passive skills like reading and listening than if they only practice passive skills. So that's just like empirical data on it. Um, and of course, that can be challenged and, and all of that. But there are studies that kind of demonstrate that. I think almost more compelling research is coming from um, again, the field of cognitive psychology. So there's actually someone I'm 
following, she just finished her PhD dissertation um, named Elise Hopman, and she's doing really important research on um, how production improves comprehension. So production practice, practicing speaking and writing improves comprehension um, when you're reading and listening. Um, so again, empirical data on this, they've, they've run studies testing it. Um, but she lists just the, some of the reasons she, she thinks this is the case. So number one, production demands more attention and higher attention uh, correlates with better learning, not just in language, but across any kind of learning. Um, another big reason is what's called the testing of retrieve information from your brain rather than just uh, recognizing it, recognizing something. So that increases fluency because fluency is all about how well you can retrieve information from your long-term memory. So all that to say, um, there are there's compelling research showing not only that speaking helps you learn a language generally, but specifically that speaking a language makes you a better reader of of, of that language. Yeah, that's <clears throat> that's really interesting and really helpful. When I when I first I came to spoken language kind of through the through the, spoken ancient languages kind of through the back door. So I started doing a lot of composition exercises with my students, and then after a while, it's like you know it just takes so long to write anything, and, but it's so it's so useful, right? Because they get to use it, they're practicing their memory, um, and it's a, good, it's, it's a good gauge for me to see what they understand and what they don't understand, and so then we can do further exercises based on that. But then it's like, it just takes so long. Despite all the benefits, it just takes so long. And I was like, well, I have an idea. Why don't we just speak it? We're just gonna be able to produce way more sentences. So uh, on top of all, all of the benefits that have been listed, you get to hear certain terms way more, way more if you're speaking it. For instance, Familia Romana, which is uh, some folks have mentioned it in the, in the chat, which is a great text. Um, even that text can be supplemented by, in fact, it's designed to be supplemented by spoken exercises where um, where you get to hear the terms many, many more times. And also grammar, uh, also um, sentence, particular sentence, sentence styles, structures. <clears throat> you just get to see way more of the language. So that's um, the more the merrier when you're trying to, to learn a language where there's just not enough content. Um, you know so Oh, yeah. sorry, I was, I was going to say theory. I was looking for the mute button, yeah. <laughs> the unmute button rather. Um, theory aside, I think if I were to give advice to someone who's coming to a language for the first time, I would say you could do much, much worse than to construct your, your ideal study plan around just spending as much time in the language as possible. So consuming content, producing, whatever, whatever, just whatever you do, optimize for that number of hours. And um, basically, you'll hit every single theory, <laughs> you'll you'll check all the boxes that way. And uh, you'll have a good time doing it as well. Um, so I think that, you know, we can get we can get sometimes, um, you know, this one hypothesis versus another hypothesis, but they all do kind of converge on most of the same thing, uh, which is why it's very hard to find, you know, to knock one out of the running or to find a crucial experiment uh, between them. Um, because 
a lot of them are pointing in, in a lot of the same directions. There are differences in emphasis, uh, to be sure. Some, some, there are some theories that do differ a bit more, but mainstream theories um, mainly all point in the same direction. And so if you're just spending a ton of time in the language you're reading, you're speaking, you're, you're listening, uh, and you're writing, you could do a lot worse. In fact, I think basically anything else that you do would be worse. <laughs> Great. Well, to kind of move us forward a little bit now, imagine somebody else, this is a different, this would have to be a different character uh, in our, in our cast. Uh, somebody is interested in translating and it's like, okay, I see what you're saying. This all sounds really great, but I just want to be a really good translator. So maybe, maybe the grammar translation method is for me because that's what I want to do. What, what are your thoughts for this? Uh, for it's this got book? translation in the title. It has to be right, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I would I would put to this person a question. Who do we get to translate modern languages? People who speak them? Yes. <laughs> so that's that's a great solid foundation for doing translation. Um, yeah, I think that don't 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 be fooled by the branding. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I think this is a, an excellent question. Um, before I say more, I just want to check, am I still coming through clearly? Because I, I don't know if my internet's starting to lag a little bit. Can you all still hear me okay? Yeah, we can, we can, we can still hear good. you. Okay. You have not Great. been hijacked yeah, yet. Uh, <laughs> good. Yeah, I think, um, I think it's a great question because I, I actually think the grammar translation method, that label is not great because I think it oversimplifies what translation really means because when you're translating from one language to another like professionally it, it requires mastery of both languages <laughs> it, it requires um considering all not just one way to translate the one language into the other but the best way so you have to consider all the possibilities and and have some rationale for why you're choosing the one that you choose. What ends up happening with the grammar translation method usually, and it's because like you just can't become a an advanced level translator in the time allotted to you, is that it's really what you might call glossing rather than translating. So whenever you learn a new word or grammatical construction, you're given kind of a, hey, it's kind of like this in English. And maybe you're given two or three of those options. Like this word might mean mm -hmm. these three English <clears throat> words. But you're not getting to any advanced level where you can r give a very good rationale for choosing one or over the other. So um, in that sense, if you want to become a translator, um, I think the grammar translation method is not the route you want to take. I think really getting a, a degree in linguistics and and going that route is probably better but um yeah really just fundamentally like we even need to define what what we mean by translation there and i, I just don't think the translation and grammar translation is the same as the translation and in, in the situation you described um the yeah yeah i mean there's a lot more i could say i'll, I'll just say briefly that i think that and, and really colin brought this up is that um being fluent in the language is a great foundation for for then translating that language and there's a lot lot of reasons for that um but i think most fundamentally is it allows you to engage whatever text you're translating as a discourse or a connected unit like you're not piecing it up into each word but you're seeing it as a whole 
um, which allows you to see the meaning as a whole, which allows you to consider how to transfer that meaning into another language as a whole. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a really great observation. I think from from now from henceforth it shall be called the glossing translation method. <laughs> no, sorry, the glossing and grammar method. Two G's now. But uh, what if I want to study yeah. grammar? What what then? <laughs> you still got grammar there. <laughs> the thing is, and Nick brought this up. You know, if you can mix, right? You're allowed to to do Familia Romana, and then, you know, in the evening go to uh, Wheelock. No one's going to stop you. It's not illegal, right? If you really want to know about the traditional uh, grammatical terminology, if that's the kind of thing that you're into, and hey, I get it, right? I'm a linguist. Um, <laughs> I'm into that too. Um, you're still totally able to do it, but you'll be doing it from a position of, of, of great strength. And you'll be doing it with this amazing foundation behind you. So you can sit down and say, oh, yeah, that's what they mean when they say, the dative of reference. That's what they mean. That that's oh, that's the third conjugation. Okay, great. Um, it's it's a lot harder to to start there, as it turns out. Yeah, <clears throat> if you if you want to do translation, you should get really good at both languages, like like Nick said. So that that means doing a lot of work with English. I, I remember I was once, one of my students was doing a dissertation on John Calvin and, and the Sabbath. And so we read everything that Calvin had to say about the Sabbath and his institutes and his biblical commentary. And it was a lot. It was quite a bit. Um, and and we, would, we would also once in a while look at um, translations. And these are, these are old. These are, you know, I think some of them different dates, but some of them were from the late 1800s. And there were points where I thought to myself, man, this is a terrible translation. This is, this is awful. And then I would, I would kind of you know, get into the time machine and realize, wait, actually, that's not a bad translation. We just don't really use those terms of phrases anymore. We would never say that today, but it made perfect sense to say it back then. And um, this is why we will always need folks who who really know the ancient languages. It's not because ancient Greek is going to change or biblical Hebrew is going to change or Latin is going to change. Those, those will stay um, as they are. It's the English is probably going to change. Uh, and so how we communicate these ancient languages to, um, to others in terms of translation, um, the, there will always be um, room for that. Maybe not not every year, right? But um, as as time goes by. So another uh, translation kind of re related question. So say, okay, that makes sense. But why can't I just use software that just glosses it all for me, tells me all of the meanings of the words? And then I can translate. There's software that will just I, give me all this, this grammar knowledge. Um, and then I can just focus on rendering it into good English. What, what do you say to this person? Um, there's a essay by a guy named Elliot Weinberger, I think is his name, uh, who's a famous trans translator. Um, 
where he talked about an experiment they did, um, kind of at this average, I think it was like this average middle school in New York, where <laughs> they gave the kids um, a dictionary of French and English, right? And they said, go ahead and translate this French poem into English. And these kids had never done French in their lives, they just had a dictionary. And they came up with like, okay, it wasn't like fantastic, but like it, it did the job. And um, his, his point though, was not that that's how you should do translation. He said that um, just glossing words is not actually translation. That's kind of the first step, but real translation begins after that. Um, and there's a, another book that I would recommend too, uh, just in regards to translation, which maybe some of you have read. Um, it's called, Is That a Fish in Your Ear? Translation and the Meaning of Everything <laughs> by David Bellas, who's another translator as well. Um, it'll change your life. <laughs> it, it, it really does um, do a fantastic job at getting at what exactly is translation. Um, but yeah, so those, those are just some things that I would think that like, and in, in the book too, he talks about how glossing words, right, isn't actually going to get you very far. Um, and you start to realize this, and sometimes I'll have students do this in class where it's like you have a convoluted Greek sentence or English or Latin sentence. I'm like, okay. Give me like a, a literal translation of this. And then it's like meaningless, right? <laughs> it like doesn't mean anything. And so translating into English actually requires a, a lot more than, than just glossing words. And the farther away you get, you start going into the world of biblical Hebrew, right? And if you do, if you do a literal translation, you you would look like a lunatic. You know, it, it just wouldn't make any sense. Um, so that's what I would say there. <laughs> I would actually recommend someone who says that to try it. Actually, just try it. I think it'll be really interesting um, because you actually, as you do that, you realize why it it, it has its limitations. And yeah, ironically, absolutely. if you do it for long enough, you'll probably start to be getting to a point where you're starting to acquire the language because you have something like comprehensible input in front of you. You have the text and then you have a gloss, which is giving, letting you, you know, not stray too far from it. And yeah, it may end up working out for you. If, uh, if you have that at your disposal and that's what you have, I'd say go for it. Um, but I think as a replacement, it's not probably going to serve very well for the reasons that Carter just mentioned. Yeah. I think any, thinking about translation or using digital resources or maybe not digital, but kind of Greek or Latin or Hebrew to English or your native language resources. Um, fun, the, like one fundamental principle is just the idea that <clears throat> there is not a one-to-one -one correspondence between, sorry, any two languages. So um, there, there's no, when, when you when people say the Greek word literally means this and give an English word that that's misleading because there is always some difference between those two words and their meaning and their range of meaning and how they're used. So there's never a one to one correspondence or an exact um, equality between the two. And so that that principle um, kind of shows why those sorts of ways of approaching the languages aren't um, adequate when we're learning the languages, the goal is to get as close to the meaning that the author was trying to convey as possible. And anytime you introduce some other language as 
as an intermediate step. Um, that's just one step further away from that um, uh, that meaning. Um, and specifically, I mean, more than that, it's that the glosses and translations that are in that dictionary or concordance or whatever you're using, someone came up with those, right? That someone they're all made said, up. <laughs> right, they're they're made up. Someone said, this is the best English word for this Greek word, or this is the best English word for this Latin word, or this is the best way to um, translate this grammatical construction from Latin to English. Like someone is coming up with that. And, and they might be trustworthy, they might be reliable, but at the end of the day, um, the only way to get a more direct encounter with that meaning is to learn the language yourself, um, specifically through as much exposure to those native um, speaker input, like texts and things like that as possible, because that's going to shape, you're going to start seeing all the, all the different ways that a particular word was used, not all the different ways it translated in English, but all the different ways that it's used, all the different contexts in which it was used. And that's going to give you more direct access to that meaning. Great. Great. Well, now to move just a little bit away from translation <clears throat> to go back to grammar. So say that you see this debate on um, like, you know, this, this Facebook debate, there's another sub thread and somebody says something like, oh, you should really like first, you should really learn the grammar. And then you see, you see these two opposing sides, strong proponents of learning the grammar. And then folks basically are like, no, no need. No need to learn the grammar. Forget about grammar. Grammar is is the enemy. Um, what what is what do you think about explicit grammar instruction? Is there any good there? Is it all bad? Um, what are your thoughts? It kind of depends on what we mean by grammar. You know, grammar is no no good. Get rid of the grammar. You need grammar. You're going to get grammar. Um, you know. Grammar is the, it, it's that aspect of the language that, that uh, has to do with how things are combined in order to, to establish these four meaning correspondences. So just by putting two words together, you have grammar. So you can't escape grammar. <laughs> Open grammar is upon us whether we risk it or not. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, but probably what people mean is, you know, charts, lists of case uses, case uses, declensions, conjugations, things like that. Um, and these things are not false. These are real generalizations about the language. Um, so learning them is probably not going to hurt you. The question though, this comes down to an area where the theories do actually differ. Is there a pathway for that explicit learning, which results in explicit knowledge to swap sides and turn into the implicit knowledge that lets you do the good stuff um, of language. One kind of argument against that is that the rules of grammar as described in um, pedagogical material like textbooks are actually not the rules that seem to be active in our minds. The, the rules that are active in our minds are much more, um, are much more abstract and uh, and and not at all accessible to um, to reflection. Uh, now it is true that you know this ending of this noun in this case in this number is e or whatever. But um, 
but the grammar that that is getting built up that's just a relatively small portion of it that's like one tag on one set of uh, grammatical features the grammar as a whole the actual the actual um you know complicated stuff that is of a different kind and that seems to just build itself up as you go um so whether the explicit teaching of verb charts and things can help you it maybe it can I, some theories think it it can some theories think it can't it's probably not going to hurt you unless you really hate it and you avoid doing it you avoid the whole language because you're doing it and you never want to see it again i think that's a good argument for not doing it but um i think the real question comes down to how much time do you really have to be spending on this language and is this the best use of your time is the best use of your time to be pouring over verb charts i doubt it maybe it is could it in theory help maybe people say yes people say no um, I think go go with the uh, go with the stuff that everyone says yes about, uh, because it also seems to work. Another thing too, um, just kind of bouncing. I mean, saying a similar thing, but basically, it can be helpful, right? Um, it's not like, like you said, Colin. It's it's not necessarily going to hurt you, unless it's going to make you scared and never turn back. Um, but the sometimes. You have students, for example, who like are going through something and they keep making mistakes about, I don't know, a certain um, use of the data or whatever. And sometimes it's just helpful to be like, hey, there's this rule that says this, this, and this. They're like, oh, got it. And then they never make a mistake again. And so, you know, points like that where you can just be like, okay, this, this will help you. Um, and sometimes, you know, we talk about the natural method and just input, right? This is where, yeah, it's like, okay, maybe we can, maybe we can learn a language like a child, but we don't have to, <laughs> you know, nobody wants to spend, you know, three years of their life necessarily doing that. So grammar can be helpful in speeding things up because you can be like, okay, here's, here, here's where that mistake, you know, can be fixed and it's just really easy. And then, you know, they're on their way. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think some good points there. I, I would, I think a good place to start is that explicit grammar um, probably isn't necessary to acquire a language, but it might be helpful. So that that's where I like what you said, Colin, where it's like, you might as well just go with what everyone's agreeing on because you know that's going to work. Um, and then you can kind of figure out if you think explicit grammar is going to help. But it, it seems pretty obvious that it's not necessary because people just learn languages all the time, usually first languages, but even second languages, people learn all the time without explicit grammar teaching or learning in the sense of, especially like the meta language I talked about, having language to talk about the language. I, I do think if, if you've learned anything about me, it's probably that I like distinctions. Um, so some some more distinctions, I think. Yeah, you're, you're a natural scholastic. <laughs> I think, um, <laughs> yeah, I think um, it's important to kind of distinguish between explicit grammar teaching and using your native language because there are ways of doing explicit grammar teaching that don't use the native language but you you teach the grammar in the target language so you use greek to explain greek grammar um just an important thing because people tend to lump those together and there might be things that using your native language introduce that are unhelpful that just giving meta language and the target language maybe doesn't introduce, so that's important. But also there, there's a, a important concept called like form focused 
um, learning or teaching. So it's in contrast to what I said about meaning focus. It's where you're, you are consciously focusing on the form of the language. But again, it doesn't necessarily involve meta language. It doesn't necessarily involve um, your uh, native language. So I'll give an example. If, if I'm teaching someone English and they say, yesterday I go to the store, I, I could say, um, yesterday you go to the store or yesterday you went to the store. So that's form focused. I'm, I'm kind of drawing their attention to the form of the language. Um, and in doing so, they're not, they're, they're, like I said, cognitive capacities are being divided between meaning and form there. So in, in a sense, it's no longer meaning focused, it's form focused. But does that count as explicit grammar teaching? I, I don't know. Um, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. So just some distinctions there. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think there are kind of, reasons to believe that actually all of those things I just mentioned, form focused, um, teaching or learning, explicit grammar instruction in the sense of giving meta language for the language and using your native language to explain things um, are all useful in certain proportions and contexts. Yeah, I but they're still important to distinguish. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think the, the, the point about proportion is helpful. So I, I find explicit grammar instruction, not in the target language, I think it can be done in a target language, but in the in you know your first language can be really helpful. So the uh, some of the materials that we work with, <clears throat> Orberg doesn't do it in the um, first language. But uh, some of the materials that we work with follow that same pattern, which is first, you start with exposure to the language, right? So for instance, if you know Roman's language, you can pick up Familia Romana and read the first chapter and understand it. So you begin with exposure to the language and then you move on to certain principles. So for instance, in the Latin Primer, which is a program that Pictodicta has developed, one of the first things that students learn is in plus the ablative. It doesn't tell them that, right? So they learn a bunch of words and then it's like crazy stuff, like, well, ubi est miles, miles est in populo, right? In libro, uh, then it's, a, it's on top of a book, in libro. Uh, and then it, it goes on and on, and they see a bunch of examples. And again, notice that this is probably not natural method because it's not spontaneous communication. It's directed. Uh, some natural, you know, ad advocates would probably be, oh, this is too rigid or something like that. Um, but they are being trained. They're being taught to recognize a particular pattern. So I really like, Colin, what you've been saying about language being a marriage between form and meaning. So here they're, um, they're seeing right form within a particular context where there's meaning, but there's no explicit instruction yet. They get to see a bunch of examples, a bunch of examples, a bunch of examples. And then with this method, I've seen students that can say out loud sentences that they have never seen before, which is pretty amazing. Uh, these are middle schoolers, <laughs> middle schoolers just speaking out things that they have never read or heard um, because they have because they recognize the patterns. That's it. I mean, that's like the canonical 
evidence for there being some grammar that right. they've acquired. They're producing things that they've never, they've never, uh, they're producing output that they've never had input for. Yep. Um, so the principles are at work there. Um, I think it's really interesting to to piggyback off of something Nick said about form-focused instruction. So fo form-focused or fo focus on form um, uh, instruction is not just someone going up to the blackboard and saying, by the way, the third person plural of this conjugation is whatever. It also includes things like the start of Familia Romana. Familia Romana has is composed of texts uh, that draw your attention to certain grammatical features. Hmm, in plus the ablative, in plus the ablative. They don't say in plus the ablative, but you see it over and over again. That's also focus on form. Um, what Nick mentioned, uh, uh, recasts, um, you know, he, he goed home. No, 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 he went, you mean he went home? Oh yeah, he went home. Uh, comprehension checks. These are, this is another example of focus on form because you're drawing attention to some aspect of, of, of where the, com the communication is broken down because of form. So we do this in our first languages, by the way. You know, you're telling a story. Yeah, so he, he came up to me and said, wait, he, who, who's he, right? Something is broken down there and we do a comprehension check. We're focusing on form there too. So, um, so this can be quite broad. So when we get, talk about explicit grammar, uh, grammar teaching, it's not always this, this notion of someone in Tweed, you know, screaming gender number case, gender number case. That actually happened to me. Um, <laughs> I wasn't the one in Tweed at the time, but um, anyway. Uh, so, so yeah, <laughs> I have some trauma, some, some high school <laughs> Latin trauma <laughs> about that. Um, but uh, the, it's interesting because when we look at the research on things like focus on form, uh, there are, there's definitely lots of evidence that um, it does produce improvements. But one thing that this sort of applies to a lot of second language acquisition research is the way that the studies are conducted are necessarily limited. So when we're talking about uh, ourselves learning a language, we are interested in a lifetime of use of this language. Um, Long term for an SLA study is not a lifetime, right? For practical reasons, it's a semester, or you know, it's a couple months. So this is what you often see in terms of people talking about long term results. You know, maybe a year, right? Because you're, these things are being done generally on undergraduate students in universities. Um, so there are practical implications. Pardon me. I said, and sometimes to them, but anyway. And sometimes to them. Um, <laughs> And also uh, the way that the studies are, are, are operationalized, it's um, you're usually testing explicit knowledge. Not all of the time, but the vast majority of the time you are. And so if you have a view that sees explicit knowledge as irrelevant or superfluous or unrelated right. to implicit knowledge, it's very hard to know how to interpret these things. So this is where some of the, the confusion comes in. When you'll see someone says, a study said this, a study said that, it's it's too much to expect for for language learners to go in and look at how the studies were designed. This is why I think it's good, and this is what Nick said to go back to back to the basics, back to the way, places where where we all where we where the field all agrees, more or less. And it's yeah. to do these, these good things that it's you know it's like it's like when someone says how do I how can I be healthy? Well, you know. You could do worse than going out and exercise. Oh, but what kind of exercise? Should I be doing it three times a week or four times a week? Should it be 20 or 30 minutes? You know, exercise, right? Maybe start with that. 
And this is a situation that we're in with with um, with giving recommendations yeah. for language learners. No, that's yeah. great. And you know, we could uh, we could you know, continue chatting about these topics, but I do want to get to some questions from the audience. So I'm just gonna, uh, and we have you know, I don't know if all of you have harsh limits on your time. Um, so if you if you need to go once we hit two p.m. or ten minutes from now, uh, feel free to do so. Uh, but let's let's look at some questions. So I think you'll be able to see this. This is a question by one of the listeners and a student at the Ancient Language Institute. She asks, I have a hard time not doing grammar translation, even when I don't mean to. I feel like it's the only way I can be sure why the grammar is what it is. How to really just read without doing that. Thoughts on how to move beyond um, translating in your head. One good way is to crank down the difficulty of the text. When you crank down the difficulty of the text and you are at a, a comprehension, um, where you're at a comprehension level where you're just sailing through, you don't have time to to stop and, and smell the grammatical roses. You're just, you're just going, you're just reading like you would read in your first language. And so that would be one recommendation for that, that I've actually in my own private, private, uh, uh, experience of of um, doing the same thing because I'm the kind of guy who likes to to get distracted by grammar and like hey what's and what's the etymology and you know but I don't do that when I'm when I'm uh, reading something that I have uh, really high comprehension of. Yeah, um, you said one way. I, I would say that is the way, the, the primary way, and it's the, a big mistake I think people make when it comes to languages is they think to progress they need to progressively deal with harder and harder texts, but most people, what they need is, is to dial it back and deal with easier texts. And so um, <clears throat> one, like I mentioned way back in the beginning is that there's kind of a minimum threshold um, of what you need to know in a text in order to be able to um, read it fluently or to stay meaning focused. And a, a lot of scholars in the field say that that number is 98%. So you, have, you need to know 98% or more of what's in a text to be able to stay focused on the meaning, um, which especially when it comes with these ancient languages, um, when it comes to these ancient languages, it, at, when you're at the beginner, even intermediate level, there, there are very few, if any, texts at that level. Um, and that's why you need some resources, whether it's someone who can speak the language proficiently to create that input for you, um, or a program like Biblingo that we have produced um, materials like that. Um, but that, that's what you need and um, to kind of, um, I, I'm like obsessed with what co cognitive psychology brings to the table right now. And I, I was reading some studies and basically they said that um, it's very co common for people when they're reading a language, uh, I mean, reading a text in a second language to um, you, you use mental translation into their their primary uh, native language uh, during the the process, but um, it happens when to go back to the idea of cognitive capacity. It happens when you're exceeding the the capacity that you have cognitively. So when thinking about it in the target language becomes too much effort for you, you switch into your native language because it's easier. And so that's why it's so important to go to really 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 easy texts so that you never hit that capacity level that causes you to switch. And, th and that's what they say is um, in these studies that uh, as your reading proficiency 
grows, which has to do not only with your fluency, but the complexity of language that you're able to process, um, the less you use mental translation as an aid. Now, it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing to use mental translation. Again, it's kind of inevitable when you hit that capacity level. Um, but if you want to practice not doing that, what you need to do is go to easier texts so that you never reach that, that cognitive right. capacity. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And I think on top of on top of that, I think it, it's also a matter of habits. So some the you know, I think we've all encountered people who are just so used to translating when learning a language and that's become a habit. And so sometimes you need to break that habit. <laughs> and how do you do that? Um, one thing that I have found um, really effective is that is using audio especially because with Latin, with Latin, you have so many resources. So there's great audio for Familia Romana. So if you haven't listened to the audio of say chapter one, start with that. Start just listening without looking at the text. Um, one advantage that listening has to reading in this case is that when you're reading, you have the luxury of, of just stopping. You don't have that luxury when you're just listening. And this is also why uh, what Nick was saying, having someone right there in front of you speaking to you and with you and at you <laughs> in the target language is so useful because you're just listening to it. There's nothing there that's not attached to anywhere where you can just pause. You just have to process it. And either you do or you don't. And if it's, and if it's at um, a level of ease where you can just you know, take it in, that's, I think that that's going to be really successful. Um, in terms of breaking that that habit and and moving beyond uh, translation. Just a very quick thing about breaking the habit. You can also go and try a different language. So your experience with that can bring out what is kind of essential to the process of, of uh, language acquisition rather than what is specific to that language that you've been studying. So it's often nice to take a break, you know, now knowing what you now know, go and try another language and, and see if you can establish some good habits there that you can bring back to what you were looking at before. Yeah, that, yeah. that's great. Um, I'm going to move on to the next question. We could probably have a whole, uh, you know, roundtable discussion on that question. I think it's a great question, um, but uh, we're going to have to move on <laughs> uh, to this next question. So uh, Bruce, he says, what's the current consensus and acquisition theory on different styles of learning? Uh, examples, listening and demonstrations versus seeing the printed word, for example. So learning styles, what, what do you think? I'll confess that I, I'm not extremely well versed on the literature on learning styles. My, um, my gut reaction is that they're not extremely in favor at the moment um, in the literature. Um, but I think there is some research about uh, having to do with getting getting the input in, um, say, through reading versus through listening versus through both at the same time. There can be some benefits of getting both at the same time. There can also be some drawbacks of getting both at the same time. So, uh, you know, you have to sort of experiment and see what works for you. Um, but I'm not, I'm not uh, too aware of any literature showing like a lot of individual differences in in how that works, but I could be wrong because that's not something I've delved into extensively. Yeah, similar. Um, 
I haven't come across too much research that deals with that specifically. Perhaps that is says something about it that that it isn't um, a big topic of conversation in the field right now. I do know that kind of a more recent development in the field is toward what people call like socio-cultural methods, I think, um, that do deal more with um, just the varied contexts and reasons and things like that people would be learning languages. But it has more to do with like, you know, are you are you learning a language to be able to communicate in a different culture and are you in that culture and what are your motivations and stuff? It's not so much learning styles in the sense of are you a visual learner? Are you an auditory learner or whatever else? I, I do think that those are less... Um, less prominent in terms of the the conversation and and besides that it's just again when when these these this research is putting forward certain things they're not making those distinctions like okay input is is essential for these particular types of people it's like no like in general input is is essential you know so um it doesn't seem to be super important in terms of what people are talking about yeah, in terms of, um, so yeah, I have zero familiarity with the research on this area, but in terms of learning styles, I, uh, you've, there's been a few things coming out that say, yeah, it's it's overhyped, right? It's like, I only learn if I do X. Probably not true. But it is really helpful to, to interact with the language using as many senses as possible. So with uh, Pictodicta materials, right? You see a sword, you just see the sword and you don't have a translation that says sword, gladius. It's just gladius, right? And, and so you see it and you hear it, right? And you get to hear it and you can click on it as many times as you like. Uh, Biblingo uses a similar method, if not the same one for introducing vocabulary where you see it and you hear it and you read it, right? So you're... Um, if you can find a way to interact with the language using as many senses as possible, that's going to um, make it more memorable for you. Um, so I don't know about research, but I've seen it really work with my students. And it's also just more fun if you can see it and hear it um, and taste it. But, you know, you can't really taste swords too often. <laughs> I mean, not to live to tell the tale. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, I think um, I think there is second language acquisition research research that supports that. For example, um, just a simple principle: pollination. You know, one of our favorites um, says that one of the most important conditions for learning is uh, he says varied meetings and varied use, which just means that you're reading, listening, speaking, and writing the language in varied ways. Um, like you're seeing vocabulary words in varied context mm -hmm. and varied yeah. forms using its whole range of meaning and things like that. But um, behind that, um, a again, cognitive psychologist, I think her name is Joanna Christodoulou, which those who are studying Greek might know what that means. Um, she she basically simplifies it and just says the more connections you ha you've made to a particular word or construction, basically like the more routes you have to get to it in your mind so if you have connected that word with not only an english gloss but you've connected it with a sound and you've connected it with an image and you've connected it with all these things you have like more inroads to retrieve it from your long-term memory um and again there's like a cognitive basis for that um so i think that 
is definitely supported in the research very strongly. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, last question, last question, and then we can all go eat tacos. Um, so Tim Avery says, if what you ultimately want to develop is specifically the skill of reading, to what extent should one center communicative activities around written texts? What are different ways this could look? So if we look at reading um, from this sort of skill-based perspective that uh, I was mentioning earlier, it has as a prerequisite your developmental representation of the language, your knowledge of the language, how the language works, uh, the, the, the sense that allows you to produce and comprehend. And then once that's there, then you can start developing the, um, the fluency uh, or speed, automaticity of reading. Um, however, there's a bit of a chicken and egg thing, right? Because um, how are you going to get that input? Maybe, you know, through reading. And so you get a, into a, a, virtuous, um, <laughs> a, a virtuous circle. But uh, I think that get the input however is easiest to get yourself up to the, you know, a point where you can start to read texts that you want to read. And then, um, and then just, you could then orient yourself to war more towards reading if you're not interested at all in speaking, but you have a really nicely, um, a nicely developed mental representation of the language, which, um, which looks like, you know, you don't forget it when you're tired, that kind of thing, right? We don't forget to say, um, you know, he likes her. We don't accidentally say she when we're tired as native speakers of English. That's just sort of, that's our, our knowledge of English. It doesn't depend on that. Uh, so once you have that that really developed representation, then you can just focus on um, focus on fluency building activities. Of course, you'll be probably at the point where you don't need to listen to advice from me. Uh, if you're at that at that point, you're just off doing what you want. Yeah, I would agree. I think I mean, we've already kind of talked about this, but like assuming your goal is not to speak the language, especially with Latin, you know, you get all sorts of people who don't really care about speaking it, but I still always bring them in being like, okay, we're going to speak Latin. <laughs> it's going to be uncomfortable at first, but it'll get better. Um, but even if your goal isn't to speak it, we're still going to use speaking as a method because like, like what's already been said, it's a really good way of kind of internalizing, you know, structures that um, would be really hard to do if you just read it. And so even when, um, if, I mean, just kind of talking about that question in particular, if you are really wanting to just read Latin, I would still recommend um, reading out loud as you're going through. Um, and even if you're with a teacher, um, a really good way to use speaking to help improve your reading is ask questions about the text in the language. Um, and those are all good ways to kind of again, fossilize and kind of um, really get your uh, mastery of it up because then you can go back and just read it through and you'll be able to comprehend it so much better than you could before. And that's how it is in personal experience too. So that's all we have time for on this episode of the Biblical Languages podcast brought to you by Biblingo. We hope you enjoyed it. 